Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Phil Kraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike G. And today on the podcast, we got Raul Martinez. What's up, bro? Hey, what's going on, Mike? I like the way you said my name there. <laughs> I know. I'm feeling a lot better than yesterday. Man. I was exhausted yesterday. But uh, today we're doing a podcast with Raul. And Raul is a uh, combatives guru, um, former undercover, former patrol officer, former military guy, former contractor. And uh, yeah, you've done a lot of stuff, man. Give us a, give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, it's, it's flattering to hear you say those things, actually, because uh, it always sounds better when somebody else <laughs> <laughs> reads your bio. Uh, yeah, just, it, you know, growing up in the city, it, it was it was interesting because, and this is kind of where it all picks up, the, the combative stuff. Growing up in, in a really urban environment in Chicago, like, we fought, and, and nobody was mad at each other. We would just fight, and it would be no winning or losing. It was just like, all right, let's test each other's metal. And then we'd shake hands and we'd be all good after that. You know, it's a lot different than now where dudes like want to destroy each other for no reason. They want to kill each other. They want to escalate. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why, why go there? Let's learn from each other. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in a cool environment as far as uh, that. A lot of old buddies are either in jail or dead. And it was cool that my mom was able to kind of get us out of that area. Uh, from there, high school was fun. Joined the army. Did uh, eight years there. Closing on 10, I think, 8 or 10. I don't even remember anymore. But my last few were, so I did one combat deployment. to. Uh, we were in Iraq from 7 to 9. Uh, missed the two buddies we lost, but we always think of them, and that's how they live on, right? And then uh, after that, came back home. <laughs> I always laugh because I'm like, there are no parades when I came home because I, I stayed after and did a couple extra months. And, uh, yeah, I came back, got, joined the guard or not the guard the uh reserves as a drill sergeant did that for a while that was awesome uh that's kind of where i learned and and grew the affinity for teaching uh which then translated to what came later uh from there did some contracting stuff was in australia jamaica barbados just random places where high-end dudes wanted to go do things and and kind of cultivate in that area uh, that was a lot of fun uh ended up on the chicago police department after that i didn't know i was going to be a cop honestly <laughs> i i really didn't um but cool it was a good thing that happened i was on patrol there quickly moved into attack role and then undercover within three years i was undercover which is kind of unheard of for for the department it's it's a lot based on resumes and who you know and how well you can articulate your experience and and use that to, to the benefit. I remember my first day <laughs> in undercover, man. They're like, here's a car. I want you to make sure our guys don't get screwed up. You're doing surveillance. That kind of confidence that they have in you, dude, that's so cool. And, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, and it was he was a supervisor willing to put me out there and just like, here, go do this. Make sure that our guys are good. Let's see if you're, you're what you're saying. And I was like, just done. So it was good. Everything turned out well. We ended up uh, picking up a couple guys that day, and, and I was on. I was on the team from there. Uh, that's where I kind of started to see that there was a lack of uh, training for really close proximity stuff in cars and alleys and gangways and, oh, man, laundry rooms, anywhere where you can think of somebody buying some dope. Uh, there was there was that level of training that was missing. I remember chasing dudes down alleyways. They turn into a hall or to a gangway, and then there's a fence, and now you're – uh, in a three by three hallway with a giant fence, and then you're the next wall. So the dude wants to get through you. So you got to do something, right? So that was cool that we were, I was starting to see these things and pick these things up. And I wanted to fill in the blank. And that's kind of where a lot of the training comes from. Uh, after Chicago police, uh, or after the undercover stuff, I jump over to the academy, start teaching dudes how to shoot, uh, run the ranges, learning a lot from the old older crew. 
did that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot, learned a lot of what to do, what not to do, what regulations are and why there's a deficiency in training. And a lot of it has to do with the legal department, not that the dudes can't get the training. So you're kind of stuck in an area where the training is potentially there, but there's nobody to teach it. And then the legal side of the department, is it authorizing it? So there's a lot of like little hiccups that, that are going to hold programs back, which is cool why we, we have the option now to offer this training because they can come to us and get it. They don't have to worry about their department, right? Uh, so I spent a lot of time, uh, I spent two years training at the academy. That was awesome being an instructor there. Got fully certified through Illinois to be a law dog instructor. Uh, and then I kind of resigned from there, moved over to Arizona. Uh, I was on the sheriff's office here in town, did that for a little bit, and just kind of wasn't my thing. So pulled away, started to really hone in on the program, put the program together, found uh, what applied as far as, you know, uh, patrol guys and dudes in the middle of the woods and dudes in small confined spaces and was like, wow, right, cool. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to make this program. I'm going to find dudes that want to bring it forward. And that's kind of how I ended up here doing the podcast with you, man. Yeah. I know if, if you guys um, follow all the stuff that we do on uh, Phil Cross survival, you know, we talk about Chicago inner city statistics because I mean, literally the most dangerous places in the United States or in uh, neighborhoods like Austin, for example, in um, the inner city. That was one of my first neighborhoods. <laughs> that, you know, that whole worked. And it's like, I mean, it, you can go in some rural parts of the country, even, even towns and cities in America, and be in law enforcement and never be, never see a murder, never see a homicide, never be in a gunfight, never discharge a weapon. And, you know, that's what we all hope for. But when you're looking at like the scale of law enforcement, ex- experience especially when it comes to the inner city and what they see um anybody out of chicago and everybody knows this anybody out of chicago is getting that steep learning curve it it reminds me of like uh iraq uh from 07 09 i mean 07 was a bad year and then uh so you know coming with that experience and then being able to articulate the training methodologies that we're going to get into a little bit today is one of the you know biggest reasons that Raul's teaching combatants for us. We got a couple other guys, Glenn and Darren, uh, both in California, that will be uh, doing stuff with us in the near future. But uh, for the close proximity course that we actually just put up on the website on PhilCraftSurvival.com, March 9th um, from nine to fifteen hundred to three p.m. It's a six-hour course. Uh, we have our first close proximity uh, slash level one combatants course for PhilCraft Survival. And that's going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be here at our new dojo set up with Fuji mats, and it's going to be awesome, man. I'm looking forward to getting you in, um, getting the mats in and everything uh, set up. Now, when you you know, I, I call dudes who grew up banging, like grew up uh, throwing hands and fighting um, from a young age, like, you know, you, you're a good banger. Like, you, I, I see you throw hands. I see you, um, even when we did the combative stuff with our special operations prep course, and I could tell immediately um, if somebody's experience in combatives by their eyes, by their posture, by the way they breathe. Um, how did you How did you first get started in kind of mixed martial arts, or like where where did it start, and kind of uh, what was that progression for you in uh, your experience? Yeah, so it's funny because we don't really think of 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 how it's going to develop. Right, growing up, you're either getting beat up, you're beating some dudes up everybody shakes hands after the fact and, and it's just fun. Uh, 
going, looking back now, I'm like, man, I could have really developed better if I paid attention to what was really happening. But all we were really doing was having fun uh, yep. initially, you know, so everybody knew how to take a punch and, and get hit. And what was cool is working Austin specifically, I got to see little kids that were out there punching each other with gloves, boxing already and doing things. Yeah. yeah. And th- those guys are going to be really well prepared for violent contact later. Uh, whether it's good or bad, but man, th- it was exciting to see that because that's kind of how I grew up. But then I missed seeing it in more affl- uh, affluent neighborhoods. You know, it wasn't there anymore. It wasn't present. It was more like your kid falls and you pick them up instead of <laughs> letting them deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I got into a little bit of wrestling. Wrestling was fun. Uh, BJJ was a big one for me when I found out that, that it was available in, in the town. I did a lot of that. I think I got up to a blue belt. Um, I got my blue belt through Pete the Greet Letzos in Chicago. Cool dude. Uh, I trained with a bunch of guys there. Krav Maga, while I was uh, traveling, ran into IDF guys. Even in Australia, I was training with like legit IDF dudes that wanted to teach some good Krav Maga, and we, we would do a lot of fighting. Then I linked up with Ryan Hoover, where I got my... Um, fit to fight black belt, which is a Krav Maga hybrid black belt. Uh, that was really cool. Cause that's where he introduced more of like the stand up stuff with ground stuff to the get ups, uh, short range stuff, weapon defense, weapon offense, things that, that were applicable to law enforcement, but just needed a little refining, mm-hmm. uh, more scenario refining more than anything. That was his own program out of Krav Maga. He, yeah, he kind of made a hybrid with, mm-hmm. with his guys. Like some Jeet Kundo. There you go. Yep. Yeah, he just he just blended stuff, and it, and that's that's what I like about our program is we brought in what we needed, and we took out what we didn't need anymore. Uh, there's no need for like long kicks, or there's no need for Superman punches. Though it's all available, it's great. Let's let's get to what we really can afford the individual. Uh, with, with the time that they have for us, right? So train with those guys. Uh, I train here in town. I, I'm at a small catch wrestling gym, and just getting beat up by young guys and beating up the dudes that I can. And there's no ego. There's no nothing. All I want is to be able to keep my body functioning so that when I come into the gym here, we can teach guys, you know? So I need to be on the mats. I need to be seeing what's coming out, what's going where. I have great conversations with Darren. We talked to Kenny Florian, which is crazy. Uh, he peeked over our program and he he dug it. And it's just, it's nice to, to be able to cross-reference with guys that are teaching straight Cage fighting dudes, which is the super MMA stuff, where, uh, which helps me put put this one into perspective, and maybe you want to touch on it right after. But we, we're offering a course, right, and it's maybe six to twelve hours if we're doing one day or two days, right? These dudes that are training to fight, pro dudes are training thirty hours a week. You know what I mean? And they're training for ten to twelve weeks for one fight. Yep. So expectations need to be realistic when when you guys come to train with us. All right, we're going to give you everything we have. Uh, so that you can walk away with something. Just don't expect miracles because you're going you're gonna to be the miracle for yourself. You're going to go out and you're going to put in the work after the fact. And that's where the results are going to come. Like, you know, you go to any training course, you go there to receive the information. And then on your own time, you yep. reinforce it and make it your own. And, and that's kind of what we, we want. But we want to <laughs> help people understand you're not going to come here and walk out an MMA fighter. You're going to come in here. You're going to learn some great stuff. And then it's going to be applicable to you when you need it because now you have that file. Yeah, it's going to be an eye-opening experience, right? I mean, when these people come, I mean, the whole entire point of doing the close proximity course is, uh, and I keep using the term close proximity. I just like it. It flows well. But it's literally a combatives level one course. And, you know, no matter what your background or experience in combatives, 
um, if you don't train and identify what's working versus what's not working for you as an individual based on your um, physical outline, right, your your weight, your height, your uh, reach, your capabilities are going to be determined in this kind of course where you kind of assess yourself and then your your ultimate capabilities and even taking a skill set and just applying it, right, applying it physically in a chaotic uh, situation. And the more that you train, the less uh, chaotic it becomes, or, or actually it's still chaotic, but the more comfortable you are in operating in chaos. And so, you know, when we started looking at this course, um, it, it, it derived from the fact that, you know, a lot of people teach gunfighting tactics that they're teaching the short form version of it. And you can't abridge a tactic that has a lot of flushing out to do uh, and ideas and, and uh, dynamics and situations. And so what I don't like is like the clickbait version of tactics. And so when I look at a combatives course, for example, if you're in a self-defense situation and you know somebody has a firearm and you don't know it yet, and then you're in close proximity to them, let's say you're at a bar, and the way things have escalated in our society with physical violence is insane. Because people nowadays, maybe because they watch the Instagram highlight reels, they immediately think that they're justified in going to a gun or go, or or they just roll that way, right? They're, they're a, a criminal, a violent actor. Uh, just That's just how they roll. But let's say you're in that bar and you're that in that configuration in which they go to draw a pistol and you're in close proximity, meaning you're in arm's reach distance from them. You have to flush out what your actions are going to be. And so when we discuss this in depth in teaching undercover officers, low-vis uh, military and law enforcement courses, it's like if this isn't flushed out and you don't have a tactic to address that scenario, and then what's probably going to happen is you're going to subscribe to chaos and you're going to be fighting for a gun on the floor of a bar and whoever comes out on top is going to live and whoever comes out on the bottom is going to die. And so it's like you have to take close proximity, physical confrontation and fights serious. In fact, more serious than you do. It's like med, right? We teach people like, hey, if you're training to shoot a gun, why are you not training for the trauma that you would see in a gunshot wound or an accident or trauma period? Because statistically, you're more likely to to, um, be involved in that. Well, violent crimes, I mean, I think in Prescott, it's like one in four. It's like a 25% chance over a span of a decade that you're going to see a violent act or be confronted with physical violence. You have to know how to address that because if you don't and it escalates, you're looking at the worst case scenario on how and how uh, and you manage it. Yeah, how you're going to navigate through that whole thing. And having something is better than than trying to figure it trying to figure it out. Yeah, figuring out on the fly <laughs> in that you know? moment. Yeah, and and that's what's cool, and that's what that's what we're trying to give people. We're trying to give people the exposure and the experience uh, with human contact. You know, a lot of people have never just like held on to somebody and they try to get away from them or they've never tried to hold somebody as they try to get away from the other person. So these are the things we want to give them. We want to give them that experience, that exposure. Uh, a lot of it, again, blends with wrestling. So if you've already wrestled with your kids, with your uh, with your spouse, with your, with your friends, if you've done any sort of horseplay, that stuff is great. We just need to hone it and translate it into a, a defensive structure. And that's kind of what we have going on. And then we blend all of that with clinch work and short range uh, striking. And then we throw in some weapon scenarios and just help you develop uh, 
a scenario-based training where, or we developed a scenario-based training for you to experience so that, again, like you said, you're not rolling around on the ground trying to figure this out. You've already dealt with something similar, and now it's just about problem-solving it live. And, and, and that's a crazy scenario. Imagine a dude goes to pull a gun, we're at a bar, I stuff it, and I'm trying to dominate him. Now I'm also responsible for everybody else in the bar because if he pulls it and he just starts pulling triggers and I can't control him, 10, 15 people might get shot, two, three, whatever the numbers. But now all these people are going to get shot because the dude now is going to more desperately try to deploy that gun because now I'm pressing him, right? So I need, to be, I need to be violent and aggressive and there needs to be complete control. And that's kind of what we want to do and give people. Yeah, I love that that training methodology because I mean it's it makes a lot of sense, but just not a lot of people do that it, as trainers, instructors, or even as uh, uh, practitioners of combatives. I remember the the first time that I realized that uh, what we might be learning uh, in a tactic period was potentially the wrong thing, and it began with uh, it was pre modern army combatives. So if you're a military guy. Uh, special operations guy, combat arms guy. Uh, I think in special operations right now, it's a requirement that you have at least level one as a minimum. It's part of our warrior leader course or whatever, that you're basically qualified to do combatives and then you have to elevate. And and I think me, Raul, and George have all been to level one and level two uh, modern army combatives. Before that, we had a couple hybrids. We had like lines defense and it was a Marine Corps combatives program and then um, part of that program, we were learning jujitsu on the side. So, you know, as as a special forces candidate, we were training jujitsu every morning. And you know, I have a background in ninjutsu and uh, jujitsu growing up as a kid. And so, when I transitioned into that, I was like very comfortable in operating uh, on my back um, in any um, sense of um, jits or uh, jujitsu. The problem is, is when you do a hybrid and you 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 don't uh, properly teach the tactic with the um, the role or the duty or responsibility, uh, then you neglect a lot of things. For example, like special operators that go inside and do CQB close quarters battle. Well, we were having scenarios where we were running into guys and having to combat these guys, and if it was terrorists, which any scenario that special operations is involved in in a direct action sense, it would be terrorists to be bad guys. Well, I don't think I, even in the lulls of warfare that I've been in where our rules of engagement changed, if a bad guy, I've shot three people in combat that have grabbed my gun in combat that have fought me for my gun. Two of them didn't have guns. One of them did have a gun. The rules of engagement support, like if if, if you're combating me over my rifle and, and you're a targeted um a bad guy, you're getting shot. I yeah. mean, that's how it's going down. And and there's a lot of circumstances, even in law enforcement and other military experiences, where it, it could be um, justified as a, a use of force as well. Because if you're a law enforcement officer and you draw a gun and the dude grabs your gun and you're combating over that gun, he's trying to get that gun, he or she's trying to get that gun as to present himself as an imminent threat. So you're you're defending your life at that at that point. And so what guys were doing was we were running into guys grabbing our guns and then dudes were immediately wrapping their legs around them and going to the ground in the guard. Cool. And, and, and what we were seeing was like, it's like, 
okay, what are you going to do? And then the instructors are like, oh, you're going to do an arm bar. Like, no, the fuck, you're not going to do an arm bar. You're going to shoot the student in his head. And maybe you'll arm bar him to spread his hands away from his body's body so you can get enough leverage on him so you can move to a gun in order to finish the threat. But it just it instilled this bad training scar, this habit of, you know, if I, I'm very good in the guard. So if I grab a guy, and, and then he starts combating me, and I, I, there's a leverage issue, I'm immediately going to the guard because I know I could, I, I'm confident in the guard. Well, doing that as a combatant in the middle of a fight for your life scenario, even in a bar, is not smart. Right. Um, it, it's, it's, you want to stay on your feet to an extent, uh, depending on who you're combating, and you don't want to lose your leverage. What are some, some instances of some of the things that uh, you're going to be teaching that make it different than other tactics or techniques that are being taught by combatives instructors. So th- though we will spend some time on the ground, it's not going to be a focus. The focus that we're going to translate ground stuff is going to be getting up. So creating shields that, and separations, yeah. uh, uh, simple stuff from full mount, which is, it's a hard position to get into, right? Like how did you get there? <laughs> so we're going to try If we are going to do those things and like, like we, we mentioned in the, in the description of the, the program, it's, it's going to progress the way the class decides it's going to progress, right? How everyone's learning. And that's kind of, that way we can keep everyone together. Uh, if we get to certain things where, okay, let's, let's navigate worst case scenario, some dude's completely strapped over your, your abdomen. Like how did you get there? We'll dissect that first and then we'll find the solutions for it just so that you can understand that that's not just something that happens. You things have to lead up to that. Right. Um, so a lot of that's going to be getting out of those positions and getting back to your feet because on your feet, you can do a lot of things. You can fight. There's more power. You can run if you have to. You can run after your kids that are running the other way or run to your car and get a force multiplier or go get a friend, go get help. Uh, your feet are very important. We use them every day. We walk everywhere. We do everything with them. Let's keep them in the fight instead of going to our back, which is a very unnatural position for most people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's let's not do that, but definitely let's have solutions to get back to our feet. Because if we do end up on the ground, and it happens, I mean, it, you can slip, you can fall. There's there's variables that are unknown sometimes in these situations. Uh, I remember pulling a dude out of a uh, what are they like the the attic, the rafters, <laughs> the little attic space hole. Like we went into the house, we hit the house. He's hiding in the attic. You hear him moving around. We find the little thing and in this tiny little closet. So you open the little sh- the little shutter door to the closet. There's uh, a washer dryer here, a little bit of space here, stuff stacked there. And then there's the little cutout where he went in. So he ends up putting his feet through. We pull him out. He starts fighting. And now we have three dudes. Nobody's communicating. Nobody knows what to do next. They just know to grab, right? So somebody needs to either communicate or start taking control of the situation and moving dudes around. And that's kind of, again, those, those, those situations where he went to the ground. We were able to dominate him from the top and get him cuffed and, and solve that problem. But if we would have taken him to the ground and now there's three other dudes trying to fight to get him cuffed and you're on the ground and he's on the ground and nobody knows what they're doing. Uh, there's this, there's this element that just doesn't make sense to, to be on the ground fighting. So, uh, I think what, what happens is dudes, it's so comfortable to be in the guard. It's a really comfortable position. Like I, I like it too. It's, it's easy to stay there. It's easy to mitigate the dude and not let him pass. And then you can do arm bars and triangles and all this cool stuff. But if the dude's committed and you're wearing a belt or you're wearing some sort of kit, you're offering that to him because your hips are above his waist and he can just, you know, stuff your hands, pin them to your chest and start working your OC spray or your cuffs and bash you in the face with them or 
uh, your baton or maybe your gun, depending on where stuff is, right? It, it's, it, it translates differently when there's equipment involved. And I think that's what's left out of a lot of things. And they're like, well, we're just going to train this and it's going to work. But you add stuff that changes the game and not training with it kind of puts you in a, in a tough spot. So our stuff is going to be ground development to your feet. But we will have a ground aspect because you need it and it's important. But the focus is going to be getting your butt off the ground. Yeah, the, the hybrid consideration is, um, you know, when, when you're carrying a pistol, like that, that, that's why I have a whole, a whole set of problem sets when I, when I look at people training tactics. Um, and I use the glorified retracted gun because that seems to be popular on, <laughs> on so social popular. media. And so when somebody's doing a slow-mo retracted gun where they're sweeping the target with their weak hand across the top or chest or, or head of the target, and then they're retracted uh, shooting the rounds into the gut or to the chest or the torso, um, I, I'm not saying specifically that's a problem as long as it's in a comprehensive strategy. Uh, but what I'm saying is when, when it comes to getting in a close proximity physical confrontation with somebody in self-defense and you are carrying a pistol, there is a lot of legal ramifications that come along and responsibility that come along with when the use of de deadly force is suited. So like somebody could come up to you and say, give me all your money. And they say it verbally and they don't have a gun. Well, you can't just draw your pistol and shoot that person in the face. I mean, some places... Um, most places actually, because that, that isn't even probably won't even hold up to a court of law for the standard ground law, um, because no physical violence has been inflicted upon you, you're going to prison forever. I mean, that's a murder charge, right? They, hey, give me your money. I, I felt I was in threat for my life. Well, he didn't have a gun. He didn't present a gun. And so there's issues there. Now the person comes up to you and they kick you in your chest and you fall on your back. Well, in some states, if it's standard ground, you could literally use deadly force. In, in order to defend yourself. And it doesn't have to be a confined space. That guy in Florida at the, the convenience store, it was a parking lot. It was open space. So some states have that law where you don't have to retreat. But then some states don't have that at all. So you fall to your back. Now you get back on your feet. And the, the, uh, the question is, what are your next actions? Well, in the state of California, if you have the ability to retreat or walk away, then and you don't take that out and then you're in a physical confrontation or you use deadly force you again manslaughter minimum uh, uh, being involved in that so there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen decision making wise up to the point in which you decide to use deadly force at the point in which you use it so my whole thing is in decision making when we look at this course right if i told you right now uh, I was going to have a guy communicating to you. You had your everyday carry pistol, and this guy potentially has a weapon. And on the command of you measure his behavior and react uh, based off of uh, or react accordingly, your actions are going to determine your fate. And you stand next to this guy, and this guy's like, hey, where everything's cool. And then he goes to go for his waistband. Well, if you haven't identified that that's a gun or that's a threat inside your head, then you probably aren't going to draw. But what are you going to do? Well, you might collapse your hands on that person's wrist or hands or fight for the gun. But what if it's not a gun? Well, what if it is? These kind of like things that you need to be aware of, um, because I, one of the big mistakes I saw this, this weekend teaching uh, undercover officers, it's not a mistake, it was like a lessons learned, was so the person went for their gun, and then there was a commitment to stop their hands from going to the gun, mm -hmm. 
But then there was a bailout of that commitment to go for their gun. So now they're over a second behind the person drawing the gun. So they're completely reactive. And then in confiding in their, in that, uh, or confining their hands in that close uh, proximity space, they didn't feel confident that they would have control. So they bailed off control and went for their gun. So that, that situation in itself could end very poorly for the person that, you know, decides to commit in one instance and then bails, or it could be completely advantageous. Right. I mean, if the person gets spun and then you don't have visual on, on their, their, uh, gun, then maybe you do push away. Then you do go for your gun and then maybe you blade your body or, or you uh, jump off the X and you're moving laterally and then engaging or something of that, uh, that nature. But those kind of things, what I've noticed in law enforcement and training law enforcement are never flushed out until it happens. Yeah. And so it becomes this like catastrophic event that changes policy, changes training methodology for years or decades to come when it should have been addressed from the get-go. Um, and so those things is what we're going to be flushing out at this uh, March 9th course. Yeah, you, you see that a lot with, with a lot of policies is uh, they'll wait for somebody to either get killed or seriously injured before they decide, oh, you know what, let's, let's amp it up a little bit and, and add some of this or some of that. And that's unfortunate. You know, uh, when guys sign up for the military or for, or for jobs, yeah, there is that inherent risk, but there's no need to feel like, uh, yeah, he died because he volunteered for that. Like nobody signs up to die, right? Everybody wants to come back and tell their stories and do their thing. So there should be things that limit how much damage the the protective roles in society um, have to take. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and the, and the crazy thing about it being a – you know, I was in Iraq and we were changing our tactic from doing DA raids or kicking in the doors to doing call outs because it was Al Qaeda and they would just barricade themselves, you know, a couple rooms deep and shoot you in the face or they would rig the house or they would have S vest on. And so when you when you kicked in the door, you're going to get somebody who's just going to clock their vest off and take mass casualties. It's like at some point we had to stop and we did and we went, what are we doing? Yeah. Why are we why are we losing Americans over a bunch of shitheads that are going to die anyway they're just willing to die anyway so uh, the interesting thing with that is that's deliberate strategic and tactical level operations well when you're in the wild west right when you're on your own it's a completely different set of circumstances because you might not have the mutual support you might not have the you know for forethought or or um, you know the the idea that you might be in a bad predicament you might just be chilling and in a, in a restaurant or at a gas station, just doing your own thing. And the next thing you're confronted with that decision and, and literally propelled into chaos. So you have to be prepared for that. I mean, we talked about, about it uh, a little bit yesterday, but when you look at the number of people that haven't been in full contact sports or uh, confrontations physically, the, the reactions that you're going to get are varied and, and they they pretty much are all bad decision-making processes. I mean, it's not, it's not glorious to see a, a, a you know, a group full of students who have never been in a physical confrontation. Yeah. It, it's ugly, sure. but when they come out of that experience, uh, the fact that they know they can get through a physical confrontation is mind changing. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, life changing as well. Yeah, and that's that's cool that that we are now getting into this and and getting the people in to, to start training them because it allows us to touch on a few things. And here here's two big ones, right? And we'll we'll get into them. So the idea of action versus reaction, right? 
action being I start a movement and now I'm ahead of the game. That That's legit if everything is equal, right? The action is going to beat it because we're both equal and I've already started. So I'm already ahead of the game. But now you take somebody and now we're t- let's compare it to somebody who's never experienced physical contact. They've never fought. They've never done any of these things. And that's they're that they're that equal. Right. Because um, most bad guys, they don't they don't train. Um, they're definitely more aggressive than the everyday folk, but they're not out there training. They're not working on their cardio. They're not willing to do these extra things that the trained folks do. So we, we take these two people and they're they're equal. Action is going to be reaction, absolutely, because everything is equal. But now you get somebody, you train them to be fast. They have quick hands. They have quick reaction to things. Now, even if the action starts and they're behind it, their ability to catch up is better because the other person isn't trained. So the action versus reaction concept idea, sure, it's, it's legit if everything is equal. But now you make somebody better. You train them better. They train themselves even further. Uh, and they're going to be ahead, though they started behind. And this is legit. I've seen this in a program that I, I helped develop for Chicago PD, where the officers would have training guns, and they would just learn to read each other's movements. So like shoulder shrugs, hands moving towards guns, and the one side of the line would reach for their gun, draw, and try to present faster than the other guy. And in the beginning, the action line always won. And it's cool because they're learning still, right? Towards the end of this drill and maybe 30 minutes into it, the dudes were catching up, if not beating them, because of certain attributes. They were younger, faster. They maybe trained a little more. They understood the drill. So they were able to pick up on that and really get faster than the dude who was initiating it. So if we're equal, we're standing in front of each other and we're doing the old school draw thing just because it's, it's, it's an isolated moment in training, right? I'm not saying that that's a realistic moment, but it's, how to, how, it's a good way to isolate training and build dudes in progressive steps. So it was cool to see that at least 50% of the guys that were reacting were now faster to the gun than the dude who initiated the movement. And that's all just training. And it was 20 minutes of dudes who were willing to take on the information. And then you had the guys who were like, oh, whatever, I don't want to be here. And there's always those guys, but that's cool. Uh, the idea is to, uh, to get into the heads of the dudes who want that training, who are looking for that training. So th- that whole action-reaction thing, we're going we're gonna to breed it into people so that even if they feel like, oh, man, he's already going for something, well, I've trained enough that I'm confident enough to create a response uh, that's going to help me problem-solve this faster. Which piggybacks onto well, anything on the action reaction idea? No, I think it's 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 brilliant because I I see the the greatest point, which is to quantify performance mm-hmm. and to be able to have some kind of uh, tangible to be able to uh, give feedback and then drive uh, improvement. I mean, that's how you do it. Yeah, and if 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 that would have backfired in front of all these thirteen thousand officers that we had in Chicago, that drill wouldn't exist. I'd be like, no way. Uh, it ended up being reviewed because they're like, well, we don't want to be pointing guns at each other. I was like through their training guns. And I'm telling you that it's isolating this has nothing to do with guns being pointed at you. It's like speed reaction drills to make people cognitively faster. Um, But either way, uh, that leads me into (laughs) stuff that, man, I'm so excited because it's going to help people with so much. And we're going to, we're going to try to build them up, uh, which is really cool. And we'll get into the, the whole concept of reaction and responding right? So reaction is kind of this emotional state where you may be compromised. Again, you're behind the curve. It's emotional. You're like, oh my God, what's happening? Now I have to do something, 
right? Uh, again, that, that, that leads into the action reaction stuff where we can breed it out a little bit, um, but it's gonna, take, it's gonna take the help of the individual. We need them to train as well, because we can't, we can't teach them everything. We can give them the tools, they use the tools, they get better. Cool, right? Build that house. We're just going to provide all the material. You build a house. Uh, with act, or with uh, reaction and responding, right? So the reaction is an emotional state. You're kind of like compromised. You have to do something um, where if you have trained, now you have response. You have files that you can uh, refer to and be like, oh, you know what? I've seen dudes reaching for their waistband, though I'm not going to try to blast him. I'm going to collapse on him and see what develops. And now that's faster instead of like how you experience where they were like, uh, yes and no. So they started to move forward. They, they were going to do something and it felt right initially, right? Because that was the, the initial movement. And then they were like, well, shit, I don't know. So they went back to something that they felt more comfortable with, right? Because they finalized the execution of trying to get their gun out. So they committed to that versus the initial one, which was a good idea. I mean, she should have closed in and done done her thing there and, and fought her way through that. So what we want to do is teach people to come out of the reaction phase, which is, it's going to happen, right? You're going to get startled. It's going to be a reaction, but we want you to respond through that. We want you to have a calculated decision before you've uh, been become too compromised where now you're aggressing and you're giving them, you're putting them on their haunches. You're putting them on their heels. You're making them think through their next step because you've decided to do this. So it's like commit, decide, go. And that comes with a little bit of training and uh, the enthusiasm from the individual to continue to, to make themselves better. Yeah, I, I think the you know when I when I think about that confrontation and you talk about the reaction, you know, we teach that in uh, in gunfighting, right? When you when you drive your gun and you're confronted with an imminent threat, an imminent threat is a barrel pointing at you. You know, you're you're two tenths of a second from getting shot in the face. That's imminence, and there's different degrees of imminence, but the reality is. When you're confronted with a surprise of imminence, and I remember, I remember being taught this concept, right? And it, it started with CQB, where it was like, "Hey, every time you check behind a door, it should be a deliberate and conscious approach, and it should be uh, somewhat methodical—not in speed, but in in uh, in the actual tactic and how you apply it. So it's a deliberate process. And then if you were surprised, like you pulled back a door and there's something there." They said, hey, you shouldn't be surprised. Well, the, one of the first dudes I killed in combat was hiding behind the door, and I was surprised. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to go, oh, I wasn't surprised. I expected it. But I, there was a process behind it, meaning I wasn't just casually checking behind doors, not expecting contact. Right. My gun was retracted. I was prepared. My gun was on auto. Um, um, it was off safe, and I had my finger even prepped over the trigger. Because, you know, in, in a training scenario, when it's not real life, you can't get away with that because of the institution. But when you're in war and there's bad guys all over the objective that want to kill you or blow you up, you, you better sure as shit prep your stuff and every millisecond counts. So it was a, a deliberate process that allowed me to be surprised but have a reaction that, uh, that, that responded to the threat accordingly and... and uh, uh, um, you know, proportionately. So a bad guy hiding behind a door has a gun. He's getting blazed down and there's a millisecond. And my reaction is breaking the shot on the trigger. And so what I tell people is like when they consciously are confronted with some kind of imminence of threat, they're going to have a fight or flight response. It's going to be that Oh shit moment where you, you know, it's a breath, it's a gasp, it's a, um, a, a flinch. But in that moment, 
you're you're allotted that, but you have to get yourself back to reality. And, and some of the things that we talk about are one, um, consciously being engaged um, by breathing. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you should just came in at full speed. You just you just completely fucked that up. Um, consciously being aware and um, um, staying connected by breathing. Um, but evolving through the gunfight because you're aware. When you start to breathe deliberately, you're conscious. And so when you're aware, you're on the forefront of your mind. You're not where most people would be when they're confronted with violence or with something scary, where they're in the fetal sucking on their thumb in the background of their mind. And, um, and a lot of people waste a lot of time until they're confronted with some kind of reality. And if they're blessed enough to be still alive – then they have to take a, a, a appropriate response. But I like that, and you, and I like that idea that like, hey, something's bad going to happen. This dude's going for his gun. Well, if if uh, you have no tactic because you just don't fucking know and you don't train enough and you don't have nothing left, throttle the dude. Yeah, I mean, something's better than nothing. Crush that dude's lower jaw and just try to try to knock him unconscious as hard as you can, because anything in that instance to disrupt his technical proficiency is better than nothing because the alternative is you do absolutely nothing. You flinch or, or flinch and then you're sitting there waiting to get shot in the face by a guy who's going to draw his gun or do something violent. So uh, it's the same conscious approach that we have in shooting. It's just now you're thinking through it physically, um, you know, with some kind of motor skill, with, with some, some kind of physical movement to impede the progress of, of that dude who's going to do you harm. Yeah, and, and, you know, we're ready to hear a lot of, uh, well, I would do this, and I would do that, and I would knee him in the nuts, and I would do all this other stuff. And I get it that those are all options, but we're trying to build these people, right? I'm not, uh, the program isn't designed to compete with anybody else. It's designed to make the people who come to us better. You know, I don't care who's teaching what and where, and if it's great and amazing, awesome. Keep doing your thing. Train with everybody that, that you can get your hands on. But what we're doing is not only with the program, adding the mindset stuff like what you were saying, man. It, it sounds like you were really present. You were in the moment and you you did what you needed to do while still being live in that moment. You didn't – you weren't like – I wasn't checked out. Yeah. yeah, you weren't checked out. And being present is so key. And this is where we lose people, where people are like now thinking of the what next instead of like sitting in the gym. We're training. This is what we're doing. Stay with me. Stop trying to think of the 10 ninjas that are going to raid your house and you're a samurai now, right, because 10 ninjas and samurais. But like there's no need for that. Stay present. Stay in the moment. And I remember so – the way I would do it was, so I'm chasing this, this dude down, down an alley. He makes a turn, he makes another turn. Now he's just beeline down the alley and I'm, I'm watching him and I'm like, just focused on breathing and running. Boom. He turns again. Now I'm like, all right, I need to make a plan in case he jumps out. Cool. Made that plan still running because I need to run to get to him. Right. So when I turned that corner in that little hallway with the giant fence, I didn't know there was a wall or a fence there. I thought the dude kept going. So I turned full speed. We run into each other. Boom. I need to be present. I need to understand that. Well, now I'm in contact with this dude. How do I navigate this? This is the next solution. This is the next solution. And just constantly giving solutions to problems and keeping them from like coming back to that. You know, you're always keeping them moving so that they're not proficient enough to execute anything because you're just dominating. And that, that's kind of what the idea is let's train let's get aggressive let's be dominant and let's let's win these things yeah i think it's it's I mean, spot on man and when you think about the, the like the conscious approach it's it's very deliberate you know there's a lot of things that you got to stay switched on for 
and I've I've talked to you know uh, Tim Kennedy is a buddy of mine, and uh, I've talked to him in in depth and detail about you know when you're you're in a confrontation with somebody, don't just be you know a lot of guys want to be fluid because they have a couple tactics that they've uh, been taught in their back pocket. But concentrate your efforts on a few good moves that you're really great at as opposed to thinking that you're going to be dynamic, especially when it comes to defending your life. Like I know I'm good at knocking people out. I've done it. I've done it a lot. I mean, I'm more, more, though, or more so than I'm proud to even uh, talk about. But I know how to knock somebody unconscious. I've done it in combat. I've done it in real world and fights. <laughs> and so I know where the button's at. And so I'm good at finding that. Well, if that doesn't work, then I know I'm good at clinching people and choking people out. Yep. So I might just focus on the the few things I'm good at as opposed to looking at it like it's a competition sport. Um, I'm looking to end the threat. And I think there's a big difference between when you look at sports and you look at uh, um, you know, the industries that, that, are, that are specializing in MMA versus what we're doing, which is uh, a tactical combatives program, essentially. And, you know, we're still utilizing these guys who are real smart. I mean, Jim Miller, um, Jim Miller, who's a USC lightweight uh, division champ, he currently holds a record for the most wins in the USC lightweight division. Um, his younger brother is actually uh, Dan Miller in the USC as well. He'll be there on March 9th on our grand opening awesome. course. Um, also, you know, uh, he just mentioned Ken Flo, uh, Kenny Florin. I mean, he's the, he was an ultimate fighter champion. Um, he's, he's a, uh, I think he's a, he's fought in middleweight, welterweight, lightweight, and featherweight, like all the, the weights he's yeah. fought across the board, but super talented and accomplished fighter that we're running this period of instruction through as well as Darren, who's an accomplished UFC trainer and pride fighter. I mean, this isn't like a program that we're just spinning out of the air based on our, our, uh, experiences what I, which I think would be a good product but this is us taking that and then validating it against uh, the dudes who do it for a living it's kind of like taking a tactical course of action and then applying the gun handling skills and then the marksmanship and then going to those subject matter experts to kind of refine the product yeah that's what we've done and then you know finally on that is um, when we're looking at this stuff look I can't wait until the mats are in the back of the gym because yeah, we, be we got 2,000 square feet of um, of space that's going to be a fight club. And the reality is the difference between us and everybody else is we're not just fighting. We're fighting for real life. So, you know, we might be – we're going to be wearing shoes. We're going to be doing stand-up and fighting in the clothing that we wear. We're going to have EDC carry considerations, um, knife fighting carry considerations. But it's a lab. It's a combatives lab yeah. where we could literally film and then prove every tactic. Okay, you got a tactic. The tactic is X. Okay, let's see if it works in this in this configuration. And, and this reminds me of like some Jeet Kune Do shit, some Bruce Lee hybrid stuff where it's like, hey, Bruce Lee was one of the first martial artists in America who came here with the idea that the traditional methodologies and arts that we were doing and Wing Chun and standard Kung Fu um, and e even Judo, Hapkido, etc., were great uh, formats and um, um, advocates for the art form, right, for the practice. But what they weren't really good at is it actually self-defense. And so he took some of the best tactics from each realm and then made his own. And I'm not saying we're reinventing the wheel here, but what I will say is we're debunking um, the bullshit. 
because there's a lot of people out there in, in, in the tactical space and especially the combatives and knife space who are throwing out some bullshit. And you want to come here and then validate your tactic or technique? I'm, we're willing to work with anybody because I want to. I want to make it so it's like a family. Yeah. Uh, where we're we're piggybacking off of other experiences. Uh, on that, my long rant. You, you were talking to a. We actually just attended a course down in the valley. Uh, yeah, with we, a guy. Tell we, us about that experience. Yeah, right? John uh, from uh, Active Self Protection. Really cool dude. First time meeting him, and he, he was just super welcoming. Uh, their their mat space was nice. Their school was, was legit. They had a good setup. They had good students. And uh, so here, before we get into, I, I just want to let let everybody know that that's listening is 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 this like like Mike said, we're not reinventing anything. We're not doing anything new. There's no new stuff, right? Even in in the tax space in the martial arts world, nothing is really new. It just gets redone, and somebody tries to rebrand and throw a new name on it or a random new spin. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we want to do. Our program is is just rooted in what men have been doing for a long time. The gladiators did wrestling. Everybody fought some sort of like contact sport where you learn to dominate, grab, take control, and just win the fight. So a lot of our stuff is rooted in that. It's rooted in wrestling. It's rooted in uh, the clinch. It's rooted in knees and elbows. It's rooted in just close proximity stuff that we need to get into people's heads so that they can train it that have never trained anything, you know? So yeah, back to John. And yeah, we went there and he was doing some stuff um, from... Craig Douglas's stuff, the shift works again. It's proximity stuff, knife gun stuff, uh, negotiating the blades and things like that. And it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and the styles are different. I'm sure. I think they teach Kempo there. And yeah, you know, more of a, now just stand up grappling and, and dominating more from the from the feet, just because I don't want to be on the ground. And uh, they don't either. I'm pretty sure Kempo's stand up stuff. So yeah, it was cool. We were in there. We were talking about wrist ties and bicep ties and drags and just communicating the the effectiveness of certain things when things are presented, when a knife is presented or when somebody's going for a knife and reading those those uh, those movements. So it was cool to see other schools doing things that are similar, which is beneficial for us because when we invite them to come to us, they've already seen it, their students have seen it, and they can just jump right in and we can start working them harder. And that's kind of what we're going to do with our stuff after after we really get rolling is we're going to take the stuff that we're learning, we're going to drill it into you so you're going to learn them in isolation then we're going to hone them in drills and then we're going to apply them to scenarios and then that's where we're really going to see the evolution of the individual not really the material the material is a standalone it's a standalone item right there's only uh, so many things you can do from a wrist tie so many things you can do from from all these positions and that's why they need to be implemented into the scenarios so that people can execute them and create those files for themselves and that's where the real growth is going to come in but but yeah i was in the valley hung out with with john like i said active self-protection and i think we should reach out to him and get him up here and get his feedback i know he's he's got a good following that understands self-defense and they're very pro self-defense so it'll be a good good uh, local resource because he's in in phoenix so it'll be nice yeah that's cool man I, I like i like building that that community and you know a lot of the things that i i think about when i'm thinking about tactics and um kind of in, in, in this confined or close proximity space is there's a lot of things that you could read and measure that can get you um, in a more advantageous position or even mitigate the encounter period based on reading behavioral dynamics. And I, I've always, I've taught my guys behavioral dynamics and special operations. I've been to a lot of cover, cover courses like OCTC, um, um, peacetime detention, all these cover courses that talk about 
uh, tactical interrogation, but also um, reading behavioral dynamics. And, and there's a whole bunch of indicators of things that are going wrong. And what I always tell people as a, as a pro tip is, look, if there's a behavior that you're reading and, and you're seeing it with physical movement, and it could be the combination of facial expressions with appendages, right, with, with arms and legs and hands, um, that is an indicator that something is happening, right? It's not an indicator that, uh, it, which means simply that you should change your posture, Right, the the way that you, when you're confronted with somebody who's potentially going to uh, use violence, and I, there was a there was a situation where me and Kurt were in where we were traveling. Um, uh, I think we were traveling actually here from uh, Arizona or from uh, Colorado, and there was a guy in a gas station, pulled up real close in a vehicle behind Kurt's vehicle and was kind of using his vehicle in the gas position to like bully his way into the position. He was honking, he was yelling and screaming with his windows up, and I'm like, well. That's kind of ballsy, right? You see a Tacoma and it looks kitted out and it just looks like you don't want to fuck with the people inside. <laughs> and then I'm in my forerunner about to drive out to the main road and I kind of see this situation develop. And, you know, um, Kurt had a, one of his baby birds inside of the vehicle, so one of, his, one of his kids. And I'm like, okay, so he has to protect the baby bird. I'm going to go confront this uh dork and see what the see what's going on yeah so i immediately close the distance on the vehicle but i'm out of i'm out of close proximity or arms reach range of of that person and so when i'm reading his behavior i look behind kurt's truck and this dude's an inch away from That's hitting close, man. an inch yeah. and so literally he could have been just based on a simple mistake or maybe a deliberate decision of impacting the vehicle using his you know thousands of pound weapon to bully himself in that space that's like you know you're in a bar and then you get a baseball bat and you start clearing the crowd with your baseball bat right. he's using his vehicle and so i immediately recognize this as a potential threat so i immediately do what i've been trained to do which is close the distance on the threat because number one behaviorally i'm assessing this person's um reaction i'm assessing hey are they going to because they have two options, right? When confronted with with uh, posturing, the person has two options. They could back down, and then the 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 situation can reduce itself, which can then turn into a flanking maneuver or a bad situation. Yeah. Um, but it's a deliberate tactic. Or they could bow up, and then the bowing up, they would increase their level of violence. Well, he's already using his vehicle as a potential level, so I immediately knew if I was out of close distance and this person had the balls to use his vehicle as a weapon, then he could be the person that would use a weapon from his vehicle as a weapon. Yeah. So I immediately went to the windshield and uh, and to the, the, the driver's side window, which was rolled up, and I told him firmly, I said, listen to me, if you don't back your fucking car up, I'm gonna drag you out of this car, and I'm, I'm gonna fuck you up. And so I'm giving him clear and concise instructions. And this isn't me being a badass, this is me literally confronting Somebody who's willing to use his vehicle as a potential weapon and giving him the option. Yeah, he's threatening. He's, he's threatening. So now he's got the option. Well, this is where I'm assessing this behavioral dynamic. I'm assessing what is this guy going to do because he has options. He could throw his vehicle and drive and smash into, his, into Kurt's vehicle, back up violently, and do something egregious. That's true. He could do that. Or he could realize the situation that he's in and... He could reduce his posture, back up, and then and then um, uh, walk away from the confrontation. 
I was in arm's reach because I knew if he had a gun, I couldn't see his hands. So he would draw his gun and I wouldn't be able to do anything. So I'm now, I'm like a patrol officer who's standing over this guy and he's kind of boxed in and he's got options. And so I'm looking at his hands because hands telegraph um, a lot of responsibility. They tell you, hey, is this guy going to go into his pockets to reach for something? Is he going to grab the steering wheel and then uh, put the vehicle in reverse? What is he going to do? So it gives me some advantage in reading uh, his actions. So the dude, uh, uh, I'm looking at his hands. He realizes I'm not fucking around, and he decides to back the vehicle up. Well, a common mistake that's made is, uh, and I've seen it. The video that I use to to to, to t- communicate about this is the officer who's in a uh, basically in a chase with a guy. He finally gets the guy in a cul-de-sac, in a dirt road cul-de-sac, goes up to him, sprays him with mace, and then is like really pissed off that this he made him do this, sprays the guy, and then walks away like, you know, F this guy. And the guy turns around while he's been sprayed in the face with mace and, and shoots, I think, 10 times and hits the officer in the back and kills him. And so it's like when you're confronted with this, it doesn't end until you're in a safe zone. Yeah. And that's that's to be determined. Me, it would probably be in my vehicle, rolling down the road with clear visual of what's behind me. And then I would be like in the clear space. So he starts backing up, and I immediately back up, and I'm just posturing, prepared to react if I have to. But walking through that whole event, there's a whole bunch of behavioral indicators that are taking place and posturing that happens prior to an engagement. And the whole point of this course is, remember, in the society that we live in today, Things can go from zero, meaning nonviolence, non-confrontational, to 100 miles an hour in milliseconds, yep. meaning confrontational, and then using a means of violence to confront you. So going for a gun, going for a knife, going for a stick, going for a weapon, uh, or throwing blows. And 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 people are, uh, I don't know, they, they've gotten better at being sneaky fucks, right? It's <laughs> the guy who's like, no, everything is cool, and then he cold cocks you in the face. Yeah. Because you're, you were in a confrontation, he's reducing your posture because he knows that you're all spun up. And he knows if he gets just gets you to calm down for an instance, that leaves you um, vulnerable, and then he could rock your world. So, a lot of this course is in that. You know, there's a whole bunch of things prior to even being in that engagement um, that that I think we could teach you in behavioral dynamics that will uh, benefit you in the fight. Yeah, like here's some easy tips for <laughs> for law enforcement, and not just throw them out so you guys can use them, but. Uh, so I come up to this guy and I know he's a runner and I know he always runs when he's got something on him. Right. So I have him on the car, hands on the hood. I'm like, all right, man, put your hands behind your back. He knows that I'm going to cuff him. Right. Cause I'm, I'm indicating that I'm going to do something that's going to restrain him. So instead of just going for my cuffs, thinking he's going to comply, I tap my cuff case and it rattles them the way it would sound if I was deploying them. Yeah. Right. So I tap him hands out and he pushes off the car and starts to run. I knew he was going to do that. Because I, I've used that tactic before. You're just conditioning him. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, I'm like, boom. He's used to hearing that click coming out, the, the, the cuffs coming out, and then boom, they boogie. And so I knew if he was going to run, my hands were ready to grab him. And I was able to grab him, put him on the car. Because you had the speed advantage, right? Because your hands weren't actually tied up with the cuffs. Yeah. You just tapped them. I wasn't holding them. And then now yeah. I'm running, holding them, and thinking about putting them back. Because now I have to use two hands to grab him. I just tapped him. I knew he was going to go. And he, he, he just... Be boogied. And it's one of those things where you mentioned it. It's like we have to be able to trust our vibe. 
people put out weird vibes when they're when they're doing stuff, especially when they're under stress and they're trying to contain it. Like lip quivering when somebody's got a, an adrenaline dump. If you don't know these things or, or like eye, like your eyelashes will, will twitch, like people get these indicators and we need to be able to start picking up on those things. Uh, even if there isn't anything present, like you said, if the dude's trying to calm me down, but he's twitching, like he's thinking something. So we need to be able to, to transfer that information into people use that in the initial portion of it and then get into the training, the physical aspects where they can control themselves. Uh, other stuff that <laughs> that's just really, really basic things is just talking to people. When you talk to people, they have to either respond or they're going to be quiet. And if they're quiet, that's another indicator. Like, what the hell are you thinking, you know? You're fleshing out all their, uh, their behavior just by communicating to them. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what, what we want to start to, to, to give these people is that ability to, to use these little tricks, um, law enforcement, military, anybody, but stuff that's really simple that <laughs> asking people a question, like when I would walk up to some of these guys, like I'll walk up to T, be like, you got any drugs on you, bro? Come on. He'd be like, no. So he did these movements where he'll touch where the drugs are. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Like his hand will reach for his little fifth pocket or it'll go to his back pocket or he'll touch his groin. I'm like, come on, man, stop lying. And <laughs> he'll be like, no, I ain't got nothing. I'm like, yeah, you do. I don't even care. It's weed, bro. Keep it, you know, whatever, whatever you need. And, and I, that, that's the kind of cop where I was. I was like, I'd rather build rapport with these guys than smash them and put more cases on them uh, for a bag of weed. Like I knew I can come back and talk to these dudes and be like, hey, who smoked, Joe? And they would tell you because they'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm not no snitch, but this is what happened. He was my guy. And it's just kind of how it worked. I had, I mean, my first week in the department, on the street as a patrol officer, I was getting dudes turning guns in just because I knew how to talk to them. I knew how to work the angles. And that's that's what's missing. A lot of uh, understanding how people react, how they move, their their body language, and knowing who's going to do what. And you knew these things, right? So as a copper, if you're going to, if you want to know something, ask it first. I mean, what, what does it hurt to ask? Like, hey, you got a gun on you? You got any weapons on you? And then they're like, oh, yeah, it's right here, but it's not right here. You know what I mean? Like they're touching it because they want to reinforce that it's there, but they don't want you to know, but they want to know. And we see it with dudes that are trying to conceal things, right? They'll, they'll, they'll touch it, make sure that it's there. And like, all right, and you see it with dudes that carry CCW. You, you, you're sitting at a restaurant, you see a dude come in and he's all super hypervigilant and he's doing his like little checks on everything and looking for exits and all this crazy stuff. And, and then he'll sit down and he'll kind of like adjust his appendix gun. I'm like, oh, that dude's carrying. <laughs> you can just read him. And, and I don't do that. I, I think I've come to the point where I've trained enough and I want, to think that I'm okay in any situation. So back to a door, if I'm sitting somewhere, it doesn't matter where I am. I'm going to navigate the shit out of this because what I want for me and for everyone who trains with us is we want to create safe people, not safe environments, right? So gun stickers, it's a mock safe environment. Fuck that, man. Let's make safe people that are confident in themselves and their abilities where they can go anywhere and be okay. Right. Uh, this translates a lot to the range like dudes run these hyper safety ranges. Right. And because they don't want to transfer over the responsibility to the individual. So a lot of the range stuff that I do is I, I hone in and I talk about safety and we we make that a dire thing. It's like safety is paramount, but it's in your hands. I need you to start taking responsibility for this shit because I'm not going to be there to be like, hey, you flagged him. Hey, you flagged him. Uh, where I'm super hyper. Now I know that this guy's maybe a risk and I'm not negotiating the people over here and giving them the right attention. So we talk about safety and I'll kick a dude off a range. If he's unsafe to everyone else, he probably just needs a little more gun handling training. So go home, 
pick up your gun, go to the bathroom, understand where your muzzle is, things like that. Things that help you become safer as an individual. So we want to make thinkers. We want to make safe people, not safe environment, not safe ranges. Like people that are safe and will inherently make the area safe, right? Because they can provide coverage for it. So that's what we want to do. We want to do that for for our training in firearms, for, for our training in, in hand-to-hand stuff, uh, just mindset stuff is just make people better for themselves instead of relying on other things to be their safety net, right? The, those little stickers, oh, everybody, everything must be safe because they're little stickers on that wall. That's not how it works. Like, bad dudes don't think like that. Laws are designed for people that are going to follow the law. Bad dudes don't follow laws, so. Yeah, it's weird that you have to say that out loud. Sometimes <laughs> it's just weird. I, I, I have to tweet it, and it's weird. Um, so, uh, how do people learn more about you and, uh, kind of your methodologies and some stuff and the stuff you're putting out? You got your social media stuff? Yeah. So, uh, you guys can find me on Instagram, raul.martinez.junior. Uh, soon enough, we'll be launching the gray method, which will be a podcast thing where we get to really hone in on these little things, uh, on top of all the other stuff we got going on here. So the gray method will be running up, uh, just, it's a project in a sense where, we just demystify stuff, get in the best trainers and try to cross-reference their stuff with our stuff and, you know, give you the grays. Because, I mean, though we want to live in a world of, of black and white, uh, the gray is kind of where we operate in a, in a safe space for us. So Yeah, I've seen both sides of, like, you know, patrol officers and, you know, I tell good officers, I'm like, you're an asset handler, man. You're a source handler. If you're not working assets and working people yeah. to build relationships and then flush out the real bad guys, then you're not doing your job. But you have some officers that are just like black and white, man. They they don't live in the gray, and they they think uh, it's a it's a uh, moral uh, conundrum, uh, for lack of a better term. It's like it's a dilemma. It's like no, it's not a dilemma, dude. It's like there is nothing black and white um, and, and straight edge in the world because we're talking about human beings and behavior. Yeah. And so there there is a gray, and it's like how you navigate the gray how you develop relationships, uh, how you flush out uh, violent criminals who are killing people um, is, is more important than let's, let's, let's slow down a little bit uh, with the dudes with dime bags and putting them in, making, yeah. them, l- making them lifetime felons forever. I was, I was listening to a podcast on Joe Rogan and Andrew uh, Yang was on there and was talking about uh, the first thing he'd do when he get a, got elected would be release all the drug lower drug um, crimes for petty um, petty drugs like marijuana that are in the our system just sucking up taxpayer dollars yeah. you know 75k a year to even house these dudes over dime bags it's like come on man yeah there's, and he, there's more important shit going on and you see that a lot with uh, with dudes who haven't experienced much uh, they throw the badge on and now Fuck, they're a superhero and they're trying to, you know, hey, this is me and you are this. Like, dude, when you put on a badge, it doesn't change anything. You're just providing a service for the public. So you should be on the public side. Like when when we when law enforcement has lost the sense of responsibility to care for the public instead of just focusing on going after bad guys, like dude, there's there's an imbalance there. Like the people are first bad guys are a priority but the people are first man like we have to take care of the community and that's kind of how i policed and uh, a lot of people liked it a lot of people didn't like it uh and i get it because agencies are run kind of like a business right they have to produce but it's unspoken like they can't say or show you paper that says hey we need to meet these quotas because quotas are bad right it's it's uh immoral or 
uh, just unethical. Yeah, that's, yeah, unethical. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess morality doesn't play too much into it, but yeah, it is, it's unethical for the society that you're in, right? So, and and that's how I was. I, I wasn't trying to hammer dudes for anything. I would rather have them as a resource. And even here, if if I would pull somebody over, I would talk to them, see what's going on, and then I would make a decision. But it was most of the time was like, well, if I give you this ticket and you have a light that's busted. Now you have to pay the light and you have to pay the ticket and you probably don't have the money for either. So it would be a lot of like, hey, get that fixed. Hopefully I'll see you again and it's done and we'll never have to talk again. And it was that kind of interaction. And I got a lot of great feedback from from the public, especially when I would go and, and they would show me that they fixed whatever the problem was. I'd go into court and I'd be like, hey, let's throw this case out because he got it fixed. And that's what we wanted to do, right? We were there to fix the problem, which was, let's say, a, t- a taillight that was out. Um, and you find a lot of drugs that way too, which is funny enough, right? Somebody's got a, a malfunctioning a piece of equipment and you can work your way through the car if you know what you're doing uh, and, and find things. But so if the person fixed the problem, there's no longer a need for the institution to hammer them or create files on them, right? Put people in databases or whatever. So, uh, it was that, I, I, that's the style that I ran. And I think it, it was because my priority were, were the people. I always wanted to make sure that the community was there. And, and it, you see it in movies, you see it, or you hear it in radio shows, podcasts, and, and in real life, I've seen it where you treat people well, they'll take care of you. It's like, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm in Austin and I crash my car and I can't do anything. These dudes are going to call and be like, hey, man, this guy's fucked up. You just crashed. Instead of just coming up, filming you, stealing your shit and leaving you there to die, you know, until somebody else finds you. And, and that's the whole thing is like you build these relationships. Yeah, you're not friends. You're not going to marry their sister or go hang out at their barbecues. But you've built some sort of rapport where the people respect you and you respect them. Yeah, and, especially the community you live in that you police. It's like, dude, don't be a dick, man. There's plenty of dicks to go around. And, and by time, uh, you know, you, when you need the the help or assistance or, or whatever. It's like, you don't want to be in that predicament, man. You want whoever's going to pass by, um, to be like, Oh, well maybe I should lend a hand. And here it's different, right? Arizona's a little more pro pro, uh, law enforcement. Chicago was a little bit less, but even there I was able to build the reports and I never felt unsafe in the communities that I was in. I mean, I knew I had to navigate shit scenarios and people were bad and I could potentially get hurt or killed. And that's cool. We knew that. But I also knew that somewhere in a window where there was a kid that I waved at at one point, he'd, he'd run and grab his phone and be like, oh, this guy just got shot. Go help him. So I was okay with that just because I had planted those little seeds of respect within the communities and within the people. And that's important, man. I think it's important in the industry now in the business of training. It's important and anything you do, like now everybody's really self-involved and it's like, let's get back to community stuff. Like let's, let's grow with each other and, and educate people, man. Like the use of force issue that we see constantly with cops, right? Oh, excessive force, this excessive force, that a lot of that has to do with their training or their inability to train or their, or their lack of desire to train themselves. Right. So we talked about it a little bit, Uh, a dude swinging his baton at some guy's leg 10, 15 times looks excessive. But unfortunately, that's all he ever learned because that's all he ever cared to learn. But now if he learned to fight a little bit and he learned to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, one swift punch, like you were saying, you could lay dudes out. And this guy knows he could lay dudes out because now he's practiced it and he sees his power. He's been training. He's confident. He lays a dude out with one punch. Yeah, it looks violent, but it's not 10 strikes to the leg where everybody's recording it for 25 seconds. It's one quick second of a decision to stop something that was bad. 
And so there's a big difference between ineffective force and excessive force. And that's what a lot of the, the, the supervisors need to understand when they're putting their dudes on the road. Like, dude, take care of your guys. You're a supervisor for a reason. It's not just to hold your rank. It's to now make your guys safer and better. So I would really like to see that training evolve for law enforcement because ineffective force is now what's dividing the communities. Dude's not well-trained. He's beating up this guy. Everybody's on the other guy's side, but the other guy started it. But I could have, as a cop, ended it quicker if I did a belly-to-back suplex and he's out and I cough him, right? Just it looks violent, but it's done. It's not me, oh, seeing the guy, shit, he's not going down. Taser, he's not going down. Baton, he's not going down. Like, it's, it's just violence needs violence. And it's one of those things where you have to be aggressive enough to end it as quickly as possible. And I'm not saying end lives, right? I'm saying end the situation, or the conflict as quickly as possible with the the force needed to end it without it looking like you're just out to beat people up. And that's where cops get a bad rep. And it's more of the, it's the ineffectiveness of their training, which it's either, it could be their fault or not. It could be the department that says, no, we're not going to do this. But still, ultimately, if the copper wants to get training, there's a ton of training he can go to. There's training everywhere. Um, even to conditioning, right? Dudes will freak out. They can't breathe anymore. They just chase you for half a block. They can't breathe. He's panicking because he can't catch his breath. He sees the bad guy turn around. He doesn't know what the bad guy's going to do. He'll draw his pistol just to solve the problem as quickly as possible and shoot this dude just because he's mentally and physically unfit for the job. So there should be some level of standard of, of physicality for law enforcement to show the public that they care enough to take care of themselves. I like that methodology, man. Well, that's that sums up the podcast, man. I appreciate you coming on and uh, uh, a lot of good stuff uh, in the near future. Absolutely. If you're tuning in, it's the first time that we've actually recorded on uh, um, on YouTube. You saw George's big ass walk in here and interrupt the whole podcast, but he's he's <laughs> you could just see his his nose on the video. There, there. Oh, oh, oh you can't. See. Oh, maybe it's frozen. Oh, it's frozen. Go touch the screen. Yeah. You, wanna, you, wanna, you, you can do that, I guess. Well, thanks for uh, my first podcast. Bro. No, man, it was good, man. It was, it was a good uh, podcast. Thanks yeah, for coming It's nice on. to to get it get it done and understand what it kind of feels like to talk and paint a picture with words versus you know being on TV or in videos. So yeah, it was a good podcast, man. Uh, we'll have you back soon, and then uh, be kicking off this new podcast you'll have. Uh, to put out soon, which is called the the gray method. The gray method. Yeah, we're gonna try and like I said, just like you said and I said, and in conversations with everyone here, is uh, let's debunk some stuff and get people what they need. I like that. Simplified. I need a uh, gray method hat. I think it's gonna be a sick hat. It's <laughs> gonna be awesome. All right, guys. Uh, hey, thanks for tuning in to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. Hey, uh, we just launched PhilcraftMobility.com. It's a completely different entity, no guns, no knives, because uh, we don't want to lose our privileges on Facebook kind of thing. Um, but philcraftmobility.com is going to have a lot of the Overland stuff on there. Uh, we will be at the Rough Rider 100 this weekend, uh, which if you're just listening to this, it's May 16th. I'm sorry, not May 16th, but um, uh, President's Day weekend, February 16th, 17th, and 18th. Um, also, in the near future, um, we are dropping, we just dropped the pre-order for the MVP, the modular visor panel. Uh, that's a first aid kit panel that goes on your headrest, your visor. Um, you could put the, the basic hemorrhage response kit on the back of your, uh, panel, your go bag panel. Um, it's coming out, uh, in the next two weeks, but the pre-order is available now on fieldcraftsurvival.com. Thanks for tuning in guys. Uh, until next time, stay alert, stay alive.